This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. interviews Greg Amundsen, the author of Victory, a practical guide to forging eternal fitness. He shares practical strategies for achieving victory in every area of your life and the keys to better living, optimal performance, and a stronger mind, body, and spirit. Greg offers people of all faiths powerful strategies and practical guidelines for bringing health, happiness, fitness, and purpose into their lives and the lives of others. Renowned for his ability to merge fitness and faith, Greg offers a proven methodology for establishing life-affirming beliefs, understanding divine wisdom, tapping into the power of prayer, integrating physical fitness with spiritual practice, and optimizing the power of mental and physical nutrition. Greg combines his profound CrossFit and law enforcement experience with his unique understanding of spirituality and scripture to provide an integrated training program that will educate and inspire you to achieve victory in every area of your life. Greg Amundsen is the founder of Sadvana Yoga, Krav Maga Santa Cruz, and CrossFit Amundsen, all located in Santa Cruz, California. Greg brings an electric combination of passion, credibility, and real-world experience to his lectures on yoga, CrossFit, warrior spirit, and God's love. Greg's late father, Dr. Raymond Amundsen, was a doctor of chiropractic, pastor, bodybuilder, naval officer, deep-sea diver, champion swimmer, and world-renowned energetic healer. His mother, Julianne, was a lifelong teacher, minister, and Peace Corps volunteer who gained recognition for her volunteer work in Jordan, which took her life in 2011. From a very young age, Greg was indoctrinated into the culture of healing practices, leadership, spirituality, and ministry. Greg has been teaching CrossFit and Krav Maga for over 18 years and has instructed, lectured, led seminars and conducted workshops for an estimated and conservative 10,000 hours. Greg has been referred to by his peers as a shihan and sensei, meaning master teacher and coach. On August 26th, 
2018, after nearly 20 years of training in Krav Maga, Greg was awarded his Krav Maga black belt after four grueling days of testing at Krav Maga Worldwide Headquarters in Los Angeles, California. Greg learned the fundamentals of asana, pranayama, and meditation from his father Raymond, who taught his patients these skills to assist in spinal health and spiritual alignment. Greg was the first CrossFit coach to advocate for a spiritual practice within CrossFit and devised a specific warm-up involving prayer, yoga, qigong, tai chi, and breathing exercises to ensure safety and capacity in CrossFit workouts. Greg served in both state and federal law enforcement for over 16 years in numerous capacities to include SWAT with the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office and as a special agent, SA, with the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, on the southwest border. Greg was the DEA liaison to the highest regarded Border Enforcement Security Task Force, BEST, team. Greg also served as a U.S. Army military police captain and TAC officer, Teach Access Council, where he instructed combatives, yoga, CrossFit, and leadership at the United States Army Officer Candidate School at Camp St. Louis, Obispo, California. Greg currently serves as a reserve peace officer and law enforcement chaplain in Santa Cruz, California with the Santa Cruz Harbor Patrol. Here is the interview with Greg Amundsen. In your own words, who is Craig Amundsen? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, I get asked that all the time. I think the best way to concisely answer that is I want to be a man after God's own heart. And I'm paraphrasing Holy Scripture. That's how the Bible describes David. So I want to be a man like David, a man after God's own heart. Wow. I love that. I'll be asking you more questions about that. For now, um, I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your work and your book, Victory, A Practical Guide to Forging Eternal Fitness. My first warm-up question has to be this one. How do you define the eternal? What is the eternal? Great question. Well, the subtitle for my book, Victory, the way that came into existence was for 20 years, I have been teaching CrossFit. The tagline of CrossFit is forging elite fitness. It certainly does. It's an amazing fitness program. The fitness that we're achieving has a very temporal benefit. It serves us while on earth, which is temporal. It dawned on me that we need to also focus on something that can last beyond the tangible material world into the great unknown, into eternity. So this gives us an opportunity to train, to have discipline, the same practices that we would utilize in physical training, we can also utilize in spiritual, mental, emotional, character, value, ethic. We can bring that same passion into those domains that I would like to think have a much more meaningful, lasting 
value, even eternally. Um, it's fascinating the way you integrate the uh, physical training with spiritual training. I have lots of questions here for you on that later one. <laughs> Uh, so continue with my warm-up questions. The next one, it's a simple one, I guess, but maybe not so simple. What is life to you? Oh, yeah. Your simple questions are <laughs> profound. <laughs> and we're just, right. These are your warm-up questions. I'm getting nervous. <laughs> well, I think it's such a loaded question. You know, there's there's so much we could unpack with that. But but again, you know, for for me, in order to know what my life is about, I have to know the one that gave me life in the first place. God gives me meaning. He gives my life value, direction, purpose, mission. So that's as concise as I can be in that one. <laughs> right. We could talk for an hour on that question. It's so good. Yeah, I'll be asking you others, similar ones, I guess. Uh, next one, follow-up question is, what do you think is the opposite of life? Well, spiritually speaking, we can be physically breathing and spiritually dead. The opposite of life would not necessarily be, from a theological perspective, it wouldn't necessarily be absence of heart rhythm, absence of brainwave. That would deem us clinically dead, which is the absence of life. But we can be alive, breathing with a heartbeat and be spiritually dead. We can have no meaning, no purpose, no passion. And granted, we're alive, but we're not living. So in order to be alive, we have to be integrated. We have to be holistic beings, unified beings, mind, body, spirit, soul, all unified, all in surrender. Again, all in surrender to our creator. Wow, I love that, Greg. What a great answer. And my next question has to do with freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Anthony Robbins, phenomenal motivational speaker, leader, says that freedom is the ability to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, for as long as you want. So that might be a good place to start. That certainly would be someone who is lacking those faculties, those capacities right. would be in bondage. They would be severely limited. Yet we could still do all those things, which is kind of the American dream. When I want for as long as I want, I mean, that's the declaration of independence. Don't step on my freedoms. We can do all those things and still miss the mark because in order to achieve our freedom, we have to come into alignment with the one that gives us freedom in the first place. So this is why we can experience either heaven or hell on earth. True. Heaven on earth, that's freedom. Hell on earth is bondage and captivity. Mm, true. Uh, this will be interesting, <laughs> <laughs> the rest of this conversation. <laughs> what do you think is the world's greatest need at this time? At this time? Yeah, I mean, it's so awesome that that's a question that you normally ask your guests. You know, now in this moment of time that the world is sharing, it takes on so much more significance. Like, what does the world need now? Right. You know, here's, here's some beautiful imagery. Imagine if there was a net that was placed over our planet right now. Imagine how many prayers going up to God right now are getting caught 
in that net. Mm. <laughs> Millions, yeah. like the whole world is praying right now. So what the world needs right now is answer to prayer because I feel confident that we're all praying for the same thing. We want peace. We want health. We want security. We want safety. We want resolution. We want to return to some semblance of life. We want our freedom back. <laughs> Many yeah, people are right. cooped up in some degree of shelter in place. So we want answer to our prayer right now. Oh, wow. This is what we want. And you also believe that this is what we need? We answer. We want it and we need it. And I think God wants to provide it and he will. Yeah. Um, do you connect the idea of God to love? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, God is inseparable from love. It's certainly one of his or her, depending on how we want to conceptualize God. The Bible speaks about God in the masculine sense, yet that is only allegorical. When we say to ourselves the hands of God, we don't literally mean God has hands. These are all metaphors, illustrations, allegorical writing to describe what's indescribable. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yet we have this comfort, this sense that this being, this creator, this supreme God loves us. To have any other thought about God would put us almost in a position of alienation from God. If I thought God did not love me, why would I be compelled to have a relationship with him in the first place? Yeah. So we have to start with love. It's so fundamental, in particular to the Christian scripture. We find in the Gospels that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God is motivated by love. I love that answer, too. I have to use the word love again. I think we use the word a lot without meaning the same thing. Yeah. Well, think about this. You know, <laughs> you brought up such a good point. You hear on such a regular basis, oh, I I love hamburgers. True. Love. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. You know? um, yeah. or I, I love my, my dog. I love my dog. I love trees. You know, I and, and so we, we use that word um, almost in the same sentence that we would use the word like or enjoy or appreciate. True. Um, but from from a theological perspective, love bears with it from the perspective of God, unconditional giving. Mm, right. Whereas we love until we sense that that love is no longer reciprocated or until someone does something that no longer justifies my extension of love to them any longer. That's true. So that's not love because love can't be based on conditions. Conditions are transient. Love, to come yeah. back to one of your first questions, love is eternal. So we have to see love from the perspective that God sees love, this eternal giving. There's nothing we can do. There's nowhere we can go that is outside the grace and the love of God. That's love. So humans are attempting to give and receive that. But when we put it in context, we realize that no matter how hard we try, independent of our best intentions, we always fall short. Do you think it's possible to love unconditionally as a human being? Well, that's what we aspire to do. 
That's the purpose of the wedding vow. Think about the beauty of making an oath before family, friends, and God that independent of, of health, I promise my, I pledge my love to you till death do us part. You know, that's, that's the sacredness of the wedding vow, um, which, which in the human context is probably the greatest testimony of love that we can extend to another person. We're vowing, we're promising that no matter how I feel, my feelings might change. There might be a day when I don't feel love. I actually feel anger. <laughs> but I'm not going to mm. let that jeopardize my vow. Right. Mm, right. So, so do I think it's possible? Or what I think is possible is to make a vow and to invite God into that vow. The scriptures say that God can create a cord of three strands. So the wife, the husband, and that third strand that keeps everything bound together, God. Mm. And in that covenant relationship, yes, I believe love can be maintained for a lifetime. Independent of that, I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah, there's uh, uh, the number three for some reason. It's very um, interesting to me. Yeah, it's a very symbolic, very energetic number. And we see the yeah. logic of that. The, yeah. the, the, the strongest rope, like a rope that would secure the world's largest ship to a dock is made out of three strands. Not two, not four, three. Right. So there is something very tangible, something very quantifiable about bringing in an independent, unchangeable entity, God, into the relationship between two individuals. Right. And the, the symbology that I see is like a triangle. Yeah. Points to the sky, to the highest yeah, levels. Um, oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, way to go. That's great. Kind of makes sense to the mind that way, too, because speaking from the heart, sometimes we have no words like you. I think you mentioned that some people, they have no words for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, I have another question for you here about spirituality. Mm -hmm. How is being spiritual uh, different from being religious? Is there a difference? Religion normally, even within the Bible, a religious book, religion usually speaks to doctrine, whereas spirituality usually speaks to relationship. But what's important to remember is that the greatest character in the scriptures, Jesus Christ, came to have a relationship with humanity. God became man, not to teach us doctrine, but to have a relationship with us. Some of the greatest episodes in the Gospels are Jesus coming into confrontation with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law who were overly concerned with religion, with doctrine, with law. And Jesus came to turn the tables over, so to speak, to usher in a new kingdom that what matters most is relationship with God. As a matter of fact, one of the best ways of seeing this come to life is with the disciple, the apostle Peter. After Peter, at risk of his own life, had denied that he knew Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. In other words, he severed the relationship. In the resurrected body, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? To reinstill the relationship. 
Notice the question. He asked him three times the same question. Do you love me? He didn't ask him, do you love my teaching? Do you love my law? Do you love my theology? Do you love my doctrine? No, no, no. It was, do you love me? So at the heart of spirituality is relationship with God. Everything else can come second. We have to start with relationship. I agree. And that's why you gave that example earlier about in marriage. Yeah, the two and then what's holding that relationship together at a deeper level. It's um, God, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's return to that question for a moment because it also brings up a fundamental idea about God. We have one idea we've established already. God is love. God is also unchanging. Mm, yeah. So that's so important yeah. to understand because in the context of this relationship, the man and woman being finite temporal beings, we are subject to change. We grow old. That's change right there. That's true. So the body that we marry each other in changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so true. And we make a vow that no matter how your body changes, I love you. And because God is unchanging, God creates that rhythm, that foundation, that permanent value. Because we will change, God remains the same. So one-third of that strand is always the same. Two-thirds will be changing. I like that, Greg. Yeah, the way you, you said it now, it makes so much sense. What is the difference between value and beliefs? Value and belief. Well, yeah. can you explain what you mean by value? My home has value. I don't believe in my home. Mm, right. Right. So very often we associate value with something that is a bit more objective. We can quantify its value. The value is also, in an interesting way, subject to change. I mm-hmm. value my home according to today's market at a particular amount. That value may or may not change. Yeah. Now, beliefs are also transient. My beliefs might change. What the scriptures seem to speak to is neither value nor belief, Mm. but faith. Mm. Faith is really important in the scriptures, a particular type of faith, faith that is not based on what we can see. Because again, what we can see is temporal. It's subject to change. We base our faith on something we cannot see. And again, to return to the words of Jesus. So you have Jesus in the resurrected body. He appears to many of the disciples. When they see him, now they believe. One of the disciples who was absent was Timothy. Timothy says, I'll believe when I see. And he does. Jesus appears to him in the resurrected body. When this apostle sees Jesus, he now believes and says, my Lord and my God. And what Jesus says is really telling. He says, yes, yes, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen me. Yet still believe. Right. Oh, wow. So there's something, right? There's something really powerful about having this belief or this faith or this certainty or this conviction. Right. Yet when we're asked to prove it, it's hard to prove. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Because we can't see it, right? When we, when we think about proof, that, that brings us back to value. Yeah. I can prove to you the value of my home. You can come see it. And I can have someone come <laughs> actually have a, um, an, an objective measurement based on where my home is, when it was built, the condition, they can establish value. But think about this. 
that value can be wiped out in an instant. So true. Right. I mean, I think many people are realizing that what they valued, what they thought was going to be permanent overnight with the virus was wiped out. Yeah. Right. People's businesses were wiped away in an instant. And if that's what they thought was valuable, now they have to completely reestablish, redefine what value means to them. I'm wondering if God, this love that we spoke, that we are speaking about, can be also known, can become this inner knowing that each one of us can experience. And it's real for us. It's hard to explain. We cannot show it to others. But do you think it's also possible that this is something that's not a value, not a belief, but an inner knowing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it just dawned on me, too. I'm preparing for a Bible study on Saturday. I'm going to be teaching from Second Timothy on Saturday. So I misspoke. The apostle I was referring to was Thomas. For anyone that's listening that would want to do further research on this, it's Thomas that doubted, then saw Jesus. So to return to your question, knowing, an inner knowing, Yes, I think that that's what all the great mystics, all the great saints, all the great spiritual masters teach us, is that absolutely we can have an inner knowing, a sense within us of God's presence, of God's peace, of God's shalom. Absolutely. I think that that is, as a matter of fact, that's the predominant way that we'll experience that sense of knowing. Some people may see God in vision Yet for the great majority of people, it will come with an inner sense of peace and of God's presence. And from that, then um, we can experience the states of mind that you spoke of. Maybe I'm just thinking here, uh, faith and trust, hope. Now we are having faith and trust in this knowledge that we have within that cannot be explained, cannot be um, proven. But there's that this trust. So I mm-hmm. use the word trust a lot. Um, do you connect hope, trust, and faith? Do you put them? Well, sure. Faith, hope, and love. That's the bedrock of the New Testament. That's the gospel message. You know, what's interesting, the gospels teach that when we welcome God into our life, specifically the gospels teach when we welcome Jesus Christ into our life. The Spirit of God dwells within us, changing us from the inside out. When the presence of God is within us, it's not that physically we change. What changes is our thinking. Our thoughts begin to change. And this is what the scriptures teach, is that we begin to take on, literally, we take on the mind of Christ. Mm. So our thinking changes. The way we see the world, the way we relate to the world fundamentally changes. It's not our thoughts anymore. It's thoughts from a higher, more miraculous, more supernatural, more loving realm. We have higher thoughts. The scriptures say that the thoughts of God are not our thoughts, nor are his ways our ways. Yet when we invite God into our life, his thoughts can then become our thoughts. His ways can become our ways. I like that, yeah. And that's also called the Christ consciousness, right, Craig? Yeah, Christ consciousness. There's different terms for this and different you know, religious worldviews. Deepak Chopra, this is what he teaches in a book called The Third Jesus. 
uh, Christ consciousness. We just have to understand what Christ means. That literally translates in the Greek as anointed one. In the Hebrew, Messiah, anointed one. So in the worldview, in the mind of the original reader, imagine you had a reader of the Holy Scripture 2,000 years ago. When they heard the word Christ, they were associating that word with another biblical character named King David. Christ or anointed one, that always means the anointing, the spirit of God resting or dwelling on someone. God's chosen one would be anointed by God. Jesus is God in the flesh. So he was the anointed one par excellence. You and I, we can also receive Christ consciousness. We can receive the anointing of God when God dwells within us. Yet that consciousness is a faculty of our mind. We are not Christ. When we welcome the presence of God within us, God's spirit begins to dwell within us. We begin to develop the character, the mind, the thoughts, if you will, of God. Yet we don't become God. We're still created by God. Whereas Jesus was begotten, not made. He was God in the flesh. So this is the teaching of the Christian scripture that we can certainly to varying degrees, experience Christ's consciousness. We can have the same thoughts in our mind that Jesus Christ had, yet the Christian scripture would not teach that we become Jesus Christ. A question that came to mind is about these teachings, that they are so true. It resonates within my heart in what I understand about what life is all about. One thing that I don't understand and I don't often ask the question is why these wonderful teachings become means of separation. Yeah, I know. I don't either, sister. I wish I could give you an answer. It breaks my heart. I mean, you know, if, if we reflect back over the history of the church, um, we see incredible atrocities done in the name of the Bible. Right, right. But at the same time, all you have to do is reflect on Jesus Christ himself, who was put to death. So from the beginning, we see that there is an inherent opposition to the gospel message. It's almost inseparable. Uh, Jesus says that he's sending us out to be doves in the midst of wolves. (laughs) (laughs) So, so this, you know, this side of heaven, there, there sadly will be um, opposition and, and separation but we, we have the hope that that's not what God desires for his children. He wants us to be united. He wants us to be one. We are one. Yeah, yeah. We come from the same Father. We're all one. It's just that through the ignorance of the human mind, we only tend to see each other as different. So when you say all the great spiritual teachers, all the texts teach, they do teach the same thing. That there's one unified field of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that in all, not just religious, but spiritual traditions and philosophies, right? Mm-hmm. They speak of this one, oneness. Yeah, exactly. And the cause of suffering is right. the ego 
believing that right. it is it's other than unified with the one. That's what causes pain and suffering. Because it's easy to do. This is a dualistic reality. So it's, yeah, we cannot even point fingers, right, at those who don't yet understand because it's easy to believe that this is real, right, that this connection is real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And what's so funny is if, if we really reflect on the quality of our own thinking, even in our mind, we're opposed. Yeah. Yeah, true. Even our thoughts oh, are yeah. antagonistic. It's a constant uh, practice in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Constant. Right, right. So this is the nature of life, it seems, is independent of these moments of, of peace, of bliss, of shalom that are fleeting. Independent of those moments, we drop back into the experience of the ego. And that's why it's uh, so important to do work that you're doing. Uh, it serves as a reminder. That's what we need to be reminded, constantly reminded. <laughs> so let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing your book, Victory, A Practical Guide to Forging Eternal Fitness? Well, I, this past several years, I've been I've been writing a lot. Uh, that. That book was number five. I've since released three additional books. And all the books, um, it's so hard to describe my creative process. I mean, truth be told, I really feel God gives me the ideas. Um, I, I feel that he directs my hand. And when I do public speaking, I feel God directs my mouth. He directs my words. Very often, I will deliver a sermon or a message, and someone afterwards will say, hey, you know, Greg, when you said this, I I really got a lot out of that, and I have no recollection of saying that. Or when I write, three or four hours will go by in the, in the blink of an eye, and I'll, I'll read back over what I wrote, astonished. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> so I really feel that God's, God's blessing me with an ability that is beyond me. I'm, I'm just, you know, like when I speak, I'm just a voice for God. And when I write, I'm just a hand for God. I love that, that level of openness, being the vessel, like so many in so many traditions also of spirituality they speak of. You know, usually it's, it's I, I coach a lot of very gifted athletes and athletes normally have an experience in the Japanese martial arts, it's referred to as soshin, where there's timeless awareness, where the athlete drops into their body at such a deep level that they are witnessing or observing their body in action. They're witnessing themselves. And that's that state of bliss, that state of pure awareness. So normally, athletes are very comfortable um, surrendering to the fact that in their greatest moments, they were in flow or they were uh, surrendering their capacity to a higher power. They take no credit for what they achieved on the field. Um, We also see this in the warrior tradition. Martial arts teach this philosophy. In my experience in the military and in law enforcement, when I'm in the company of officers or operators who achieved absolute heroism in the face of overwhelming danger, they admit it wasn't me. 
I was being moved along. I was being carried along by a force, by a power that was beyond me. So I think that the lesson involved is that if we want to do things on our own, we certainly can. However, if we participate with God, if we surrender our will, our ego to God, we're capable of doing so much more. It's so true. And that's another um, question. I mean, we are flowing here because I have so many other questions that I'm not asking. But when you speak of the ego, how do we know when we are living a life that's guided by God and a life that's guided by ego? Wow, that's such a good question. I still, I still wrestle with that so often. I pray, you know, that's, that's a big part of my prayer life is, is God lead me into your will. Teach me your ways. Reveal to me your path. Guide me by the hand. One of my mentors told me this acronym, EGO, E-G-O, stands for Edging God Out. Oh, wow. edging God out. So I I know I'm living from a place of ego when I'm no longer consulting God, when I'm not waiting patiently on the voice of God to give my life direction. I know that my ego has taken over. So in my spiritual life these days, what I'm up to is developing serenity, developing patience, developing contentment. Those are all spiritual disciplines that are becoming more and more important to me, creating more space in my life for God. Yeah, I like the way you say that. And this is one of the parts of your book that I focused on for, for a reason, I guess, uh, part two, where you speak of the spirit, uh, the eyes of a heart. And then uh, the part that I really got very interested in is um, the eight essential spiritual disciplines. If for some reason you just uh, mentioned that. Yes, yes. Talk to me about forgiveness, the connection between forgiveness and inner peace. Oh, so good. So good. I, that's my, my most recent book. It's called Trespass Forgiven. The spiritual key to inner peace, all about forgiveness. So this is this could best be answered in the form of a childhood story. So when I was in seventh grade, I was beat up by the school bully. In that moment of being bullied, I lost so much of my sense of who I was. Not only did I suffer the physical pain of being hit, there was the embarrassment. My friends saw me getting beat up. There was a sense of betrayal. My friends ran away rather than coming to my aid. The woman who I loved, <laughs> Rachel, how could I ever be in her presence again? I was now a wimp. What kind of man would she be desirous of? She wants a hero, not a wimp. So I was just crushed. And I went home from school that day and I asked my dad, to teach me how to fight. My dad was a very big, strong guy. He knew martial arts and boxing. And rather than teaching me how to fight, my dad taught me the essence of the principle of non-resistance, non-violence. He actually taught scripture, teaching what Jesus instilled, turning the other cheek. At that age, I didn't really understand the teaching. I just wanted to know 
how I could go back to school and beat up that bully. And a few days later, my dad said, you know, in order to ensure that you never experience being bullied again, in order to ensure that you have to forgive the bully. Because until you forgive the bully, you will keep within your memory a stored lodging, so to speak, or you'll keep a memory bank or a vibration or a calibration of that incident, which will more than likely uh, draw another incident like that into your life. And I realized in that moment that although the physical pain was gone, I was still experiencing a great deal of emotional pain. And until I forgave the bully, that emotional pain would never go away. And as soon as I forgave the bully, and I forgave myself, and I forgave my friends, it was as if a weight was lifted from my shoulders. I had overnight, I was healed. I had, I had self-confidence. I, I had my sense of identity back. That's how forgiveness operates in our life. M- most people tend to think that forgiveness is for the benefit of the other person. It's not. Forgiveness is for the benefit of ourselves. So here's, here's, here's like another way of conceptualizing this. The, the events that happen to us, they, they are pale in comparison to our thoughts about what happens to us, right? Mm, so so wow, that means so that in between yeah, so what happens to us and our thoughts about what happens to us, in between that space, we can take a deep breath and we can forgive. That makes sense. So uh, do you see forgiveness as a process, as a practice, or an understanding of a moment? Well, it's, it's a spiritual discipline. That means that just like any other physical discipline, if I want to get better at pull-ups, I should be doing pull-ups arguably every day. True. So yeah. in the spiritual discipline, it's the same principle involved. If I want to achieve greater capacity in any of these disciplines, whether it be meditation, silence, forgiveness, journaling. If I want to see improvement in those areas of my life, I should be doing those disciplines every day. So what's really wonderful about forgiveness is there's there's an inherent litmus test that's built into the spiritual discipline. And that litmus test is every time I have, to use myself as an example, every time I have a thought about someone or something that I've forgiven, that means I have to forgive again. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was my one of my questions, actually. How do we know when we have forgiven somebody? Yes. Um, one, one of the, the, the hardest um, crucibles of my life, both of my parents have passed away. That was nothing. Losing my parents was nothing compared to going through a divorce. When my, when my wife told me that she she didn't want to be married anymore. That crushed me. And and to this day, that that was almost 15 years ago. Yet to this very day, I still have thoughts about her. And when those thoughts occur to me, I have to forgive. Yeah, I guess I never heard it this way, the way you are talking about forgiveness. That's... um... We might think that we we are healed and we have done the work, but thoughts will bring it back in a way, and we have to do the work again. So it is a practice, a discipline, as mm-hmm. you said. A spiritual discipline. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I agree a hundred percent using that word spiritual. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about breath work and meditation. So important. So important. Dan Brule has been a great teacher in my life. He's the author of a book called Just Breathe. D- Dan is the teacher of teachers. <laughs> he, he's the guru of gurus. As a matter of fact, one of my other mentors, Mark Devine, his teacher in pranayama is Dan Brule. And Mark Devine is himself a teacher of teachers. <laughs> So Dan Brule is a remarkable man. I've been really gifted by his teaching. Breathwork, pranayama is... So the the principle involved is that when we go through the course of our day, we're we're breathing. We breathe at the autonomous level. It happens automatically. Just like my thinking. I think during the day with no real effort. I breathe with no real effort. What these spiritual disciplines do for us is they take what we would normally do anyway, and we turn that experience into something holy. So in the Bible, the word holy, in particular in the Hebrew, all it means is set apart for God. We're consecrating something for God. So I can breathe during the day, random breath, arbitrary breath, no mindfulness in my breath, or... I can pause for a moment, take a breath, dedicating that breath to God, making that breath holy. I can do the same thing in my mind. I can think randomly during the day, arbitrary thoughts, meaningless thoughts. Then I can pause for a moment. First, I can take a breath. Then I can have in my mind a thought that's holy, a thought that is set apart for God. And when we do that during the day, for specific periods of time. And there we have this principle again, time. Time is always going the by. I can set time apart. I can make time holy. <laughs> so I can, I can have holy time for a holy breath, for a holy thought. <laughs> like that. Oh, the set of three again, <laughs> the number three. Um, yeah, I like that. And um, so meditation, how is it different from the way you practice from prayer? They're very, they're very complementary. One normally leads to the other. So I've been trained by a gentleman named Raja John Bright in the lineage of transcendental meditation. So Raja John Bright was a pupil of Maharishi, the founder of TM. I learned TM from Raja Bright. TM is a mantra meditation. The the Christian tradition, in particular Catholicism, teaches something very similar, where you repeat a prayer. The prayer is historically, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. In the TM tradition, you repeat a, a mantra that's secret. You're told a secret mantra. You promise not to reveal that, you repeat that mantra in your mind. So the idea involved is that you're setting aside either a prayer or a sound. You repeat that prayer or sound in your mind until you notice in your awareness you're thinking a thought other than the sound or prayer. When that happens with a a sense of being passive, being gentle, 
you just gently, passively make your way back to your mantra or your prayer. And that process might happen 50 or 100 times in a set period of time. Yet what's happening is greater and greater time is spent in one of two places, either specifically on the sound or prayer or in the gap, the silence between the repetition of the sound or prayer. Now, according to the TM tradition, that's the unified field of consciousness. According to the Holy Scripture, that would be the kingdom of God or Christ consciousness. Um, This is taught symbolically or or, um, allegorically in, in the Old Testament, there was a veil that divided the, the, the room but between um, one, one area of the room where, where you could go safely and the other area of the room that only the high priests could go only once a year. It was called the Holy of Holies. This was within the tabernacle. And when Jesus Christ died, the veil was torn in two. And many theologians believe that's a call to the contemplative life or the meditative life, that now in meditation, we can enter into the Holy of Holies, directly into God's presence. That makes sense. Yeah, the silence. Um, There's something about silence that is, um, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, we cannot even put it words. We think about God, think about love, and then that silence has the same quality in a way. We're almost at the end of the interview, but I have so many questions here for you. I have one more about self-love. Yeah, talk to me about self-love and and unconditional self-love. Well, that's such a good question. So we really, I mean, it's it's beautiful timing too, Valerie, because we're we're kind of back where we started, right? We're talking about love, about God, about a sense of self, our identity, our capacity to love other human beings. Well, the first step, if I'm going to love someone else, the first step, many would argue, would be to love myself. I need to love myself before I love someone else. My mom taught me this principle where imagine yourself as a circle. Sometimes we recognize there's a missing piece in our circle, and we try to fill that missing piece with someone else. Yet that's really a disservice to that person and to ourselves. Far better to fill that missing piece from within. That would allow us to attract an equal partner, someone else who is complete. Now you have two whole people coming together. Now, the Christian approach to this, and when I say Christian, I want to be clear, I'm not um, speaking to a religious worldview. Uh, Christian, that means Christ-like. Right. So in the Greek, that just means like Christ, like Jesus. So what Jesus taught was that we're all kind of missing a piece. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he wants to fill it for us. (laughs) Um, Some theologians, you know, um, like C.S. Lewis, for example, like that's that's the way that he kind of conceptualize the incarnation is God came into the world to fill the void. We're all, we're all fundamentally broken. We're all missing a big piece of who we are, of who we were meant to be. And Jesus comes to fill that. So is it possible to love myself? Is it possible for you to love yourself? Yes, through and with, in participation, in cooperation with God. 
God gives us the capacity to love ourselves. How? Because God loves us. God declares us good just the way we are, where the human tendency is to think we're not good until we get something, fill in the blank, until we get the pay raise, get the guy, get the girl, get the job, get the car, get the house, get the promotion. Then I'll be whole. Then I'll be complete. And that never works. Yeah, he never works. You're right. Never works, right? What the great spiritual masters teach us is it's possible. What we're, what we're longing for, um, the Bible says that God put eternity in our heart. We're, we're born with that desire to want something that's never going to be fulfilled temporal in the world in a material way. Yet it can be fulfilled in a supernatural way through the presence, the indwelling spirit of God. Yeah. Wow, it makes so much sense the way you speak. Yeah, the the Christ consciousness, this uh, the embodiment of the ideal or the concept of God, right? And it's not the idea that that idea that separates us of one one God, the mm-hmm. personal God, right? I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, here's here's one thing I might I might leave for you. I think you'll enjoy this. The great Christian mystic A. W. Tozar in his book. Man's Search for the Holy. He wrote that the thoughts that come into your mind when you think about God are the most important thoughts about you. Mm. Right. So wow. if, if we had to, to summarize our time together today, Valerie, that's what we're talking about. We're just talking about the thoughts in our mind when we think about God. And, and what Tozar is proposing is so radical because, you see, the thoughts in our mind about God, the reason they're the most important thoughts about me and about you and about your listener is because those thoughts don't change God. They change me. They change you. Right? That's true. So that's why yeah. when I think about God, if a thought in my mind about God is God loves me, that changes me in a good way. And so, right, so I, I, I think what... what um, What's so what's so beautiful then about about studying Jesus is that Jesus teaches us the right thoughts to have in our mind about God, right? To believe that there is a God and we can know God best by looking at Jesus. Following the practices, of course. And this is um, something that we didn't really talk about, but I had a lot of questions to you about the way you integrate physical training, CrossFit, and uh, spirituality. But perhaps we'll have another opportunity to talk about those. I have a few more questions. They are my final questions, the last part of the interview. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in one of your books? No, that's okay. I I appreciate all your questions. They're so good. I can be a bit long-winded. I I love this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you, Craig, so much. And my final questions, I guess, let me select some of them, not all of them. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? (laughs) One of the qualities, the attributes in me that I'm appreciating more and more the way that God made me. God made me with a strong desire to give nothing less than my very best in everything that I do. I'm hardwired for excellence. 
in everything that I do. And that's a gift from God. And I need to be more grateful for that gift because there's been times in my life when that gift has been hard. (laughs) I've been hard on myself because I knew that I wasn't living up to my value standards. So when I when I see that that's a gift from God, I can I can be gentle with myself and I can ask for God's grace and for his ability to empower me to be the man that he made me to be. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I love that you mentioned gratitude. Yeah, that's another wonderful state Mm -hmm. of mind in practice. What is another word for healing? In the scripture, when Jesus heals people. One of the consistent words he uses is wholeness. When he heals, he says, your faith has made you whole. So there's something about being healthy that leads me to believe wholeness, completeness, fullness is part of being healthy, being integrated, holistic, in alignment. Those are all words I would associate with being healthy. Yeah, that resonates. Yeah, all of these words, right? So my next uh, final question, if you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? It's a good question. You know, in the samurai tradition, the samurai believed every day was their last day. They woke up with that mindset that they were going to make every day their best. The spirit of Kaizen, K-A-I-Z-E-N, which means constant growth, constant self-mastery, perpetual drive for excellence. So I really try to live that way every day as if it was my last day, taking nothing for granted, doing my best, reminding those people in my life how much I love them and care for them. So I'd like to think that if today were my last day, that even the time that we've had together today was part of God's plan, right? I mean, today, I mean, you know, there's here in California, it's three o'clock. So I've got about, about nine more hours of, of uh, activity uh, before I go to bed, uh, maybe a little less. So if in these next hours I was to pass away, what a blessing that we've had this time together, that, that this conversation could, could leave a legacy. Wow, what a wonderful answer about not changing a thing that that says a lot. Yeah, you're living your purpose. Is it possible to describe life after death? I know that we'll be with God and with our loved ones. I believe the Bible teaches us that. Although in all of the gospel teaching, this is one of the areas that there's not a lot of sound doctrine. We can't necessarily point to specific scriptures that tell us definitively, this is how it will be. Although if we look uh, systematically through all the scriptures, we do have a beautiful picture of what heaven, of what the afterlife entails. Uh, A resurrected body full of health, any ailment, any sickness, any injury, will be healed in our resurrected bodies, will be with Jesus, will worship God, will be with our loved ones, will experience the grace of God in a manner which we can only dream of here on earth. So it's paradise. 
And I'm wondering if we can experience in our minds, in our hearts, that paradise. Well, I think we can certainly have glimpses of it in moments of ecstasy, in moments of near-death experience. I've had parents tell me that when they saw their children being born, for a moment, they felt certain they were in the presence of God. They saw eternity in front of them. So I think we see glimpses of it. Maybe in meditation, we sense that serenity, that peace. Um, And I think God gives us those glimpses as a foretelling of what will ultimately be a permanent state of being. It would be really great not to have any doubts, right, Greg, about that. Well, we want to have certainty. Think about the courage that the Christian martyrs had. This is what the book of Acts described. Without a conviction of afterlife, without the conviction of resurrection, Jesus would not have laid down his life. The apostles would not have laid down their life, even to this day, even to this day in human history, in recent human history. There's people that lay down their life for the conviction that this life is not all there is. There's a greater life that awaits me. True. Yeah, that has become a, um, an experience for, for lots of human yeah, beings. Right? Yeah. And those people aren't dying for doctrine. They're not dying for an idea or a philosophy. Right, right. They're dying because they have this unequivocal faith in God, that God will resurrect them and bring them healed, whole, into his presence. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, hope, trust, faith, they are so powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure? Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's such a deep yeah. question. We could go so many directions with that. I Fundamental to what I know for sure, I know for sure that... Jesus is the Son of God, number one, who died for my sins, number two, was resurrected from the dead to allow me to participate with him in the kingdom of God, number three. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your presence. It has been a peaceful conversation, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? I appreciate you asking. I would recommend people go to my website, gregoryamundson.com. From there, they can find my other social media platforms, my book, my podcast. That's the best way to track me down these days. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Greg Amundsen, please visit his website, gregoryamundsen.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. 
thank you again for listening and bye for now.